and welcome to our second interview in the Oxford Brookes Biomedical Society podcast series. With us today, we have Dr. Jonathan Lees, a senior lecturer in bioinformatics. His journey began at Durham University, studying molecular biology and biochemistry, and then a research master's at the University of York in bioinformatics. But that was not before taking out a year to cycle from the UK all the way to China. I personally want to talk about this more because that's just crazy to me. But then when he came back to the UK, Dr. Lees undertook a PhD at Birkbeck College London under Dr. Wallace in crystallography. And then combining his work in bioinformatics and crystal structure, his postdoctoral research at Queen Mary was on machine learning approaches for spectroscopy analysis. After that, he continued on to become a postdoctoral research fellow at UCL, where he worked on high throughput protein sequence function and the structural annotation of data. One thing that I would love to highlight about your time at UCL was your work as part of the Oregno group on the website CathGene3D. For those unfamiliar with CAS, it is a protein structure classification database widely used in the bioinformatics field to find the evolutionary relationships of protein domains. All of this brings us to 2018, when Dr. Lees joined us at Oxford Brooks as a senior lecturer in bioinformatics. One of your most notable accomplishments is coming joint first in the prestigious CAFA Protein Function Prediction Challenge with your novel machine learning method. Hi, Dr. Lees. Thank you for joining us today. That is an incredible resume. Yeah, good to see everyone. Yeah, thanks for that introduction. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey for me. But yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk today. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, a long time to finally hit, arrive at Bro Oxford Brooks, but it's uh, it's been a great time. So yeah, uh, yeah, please ask any questions. So one of the first questions I had was your year out before your master's cycling from the UK to China. That's, um, I Googled it, that was 4,831 miles. How did you do that <laughs> the resilience yeah. yeah a friend of mine we used to always go mountain biking and we, mm. we'd, we'd done little trips to Romania and the Alps and sort of you know we'd go in places most weekends and then he just phoned up and said oh do you fancy cycling to China and I was like all right yeah fine yeah so um mm. yeah we it was kind of mountain biking really so we did lots mm. of off-road off -road routes over mountains and things and um we sort of took a funny route um but it was very exciting yeah, I'd recommend to people, you know, it's good to take that year out whilst you can. It's, and yeah, for me personally, it was a really, you know, exciting time. And um, yeah, I look back very fondly on it. A lot, of, a lot of stories from that trip. Gosh, I hope you didn't get too lost. I can't believe maybe using Google Maps <laughs> or, you know, while cycling. It yeah, was a bit tricky. That's, that's right. It's kind of before the, um, you know, we had like phones with, um, you know, you could tell where you were. So we had, I think at one point we're in, like the Tibetan plateau, oh my we had like like a tiny map about the size of an A4 piece of paper. Oh we decided God. whether or not to go left or right, and uh, a couple of days later, we, we just had to go back because we were just in the in, in the in the middle of a giant mountain range. Oh my gosh! By, yeah, rivers. <laughs> yeah, but the scenery must have been amazing. Like what? Like a sight to see. I mean, gosh. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Yeah, mountain biking is a great way of, of getting around and and seeing all these things. You, you sort of really take in the. It's really nice to slowly see the change as you go further and further. You see how things sort of um, just sort of gradual and continual, and yeah, a lot of nice food and on the way and everything. So really good, yeah. Um, Fantastic. And so 
It sounds like it really an adventure. Pardon? That's one of the reasons I got into bioinformatics is because the cycling kind of knackered one of my knees. Oh. I needed to find a job. I'd like to think of a better reason, but yeah, I kind of got into it because I needed a job where I could just sort of sit down and program a little bit. So, so you could have become a professional cyclist, maybe, you know. Into the <laughs> well, night. yeah, it was never that good, but yeah, we got pretty, pretty healthy. It's quite a surprise. I was going to say, yeah. keep you fit. Mm. So speaking about you um, entering into the field of bioinformatics for, I mean, an unfortunate reason, but I think it turns out all for the best, you know, everything happens for a reason. And the sphere, I mean, the entirety of bioinformatics is such a big field and not a lot of people are completely familiar with it or understand it properly. So in a few sentences, can you give us a better idea and you know, a, prof- a professional explanation on what bioinformatics is really about. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. It's it's kind of a massive area now. Probably there's lots of different summaries you could do because bioinformatics is, is many things. Probably the most concise definition is something like taking these large data sets that you get from various projects now, the Human Genome Project being one of those, and trying to derive knowledge from those data sets. So it's kind of taking this raw data and trying to extract meaningful knowledge that we can, you know, then go and test experiments and things like that with. So, uh, but there are many aspects to it. So other aspects are obviously developing algorithms, things like BLAST, you know, you know one of the first bioinformatics kind of innovations that's one of the most cited papers ever. Also that's, you know, all the databases and the resources. Um, and then, but I mean, in some ways, biology as you probably see yourselves going through your degree it's kind of turning into a bit of a data science slowly so as, as a lot of the more simple questions are kind of or, or the low-hanging fruit is kind of tackled you know we need more bigger and bigger data sets to kind of ask more complex questions and then bioinformatics is kind of coming into you know in the field of cancer which we'll maybe talk about a bit later you know to really kind of understand these complex biological systems and so inevitably you need computers to kind of analyze that data so yeah, but I think the simplest the simplest sort of definition is just taking that raw data and trying to extract knowledge out of it. And it's that's kind of one definition that you could use. Mm. It's interesting how you said that a subject like biology, which is really kind of known as a textbook kind of subject, is now yeah. almost becoming a data-based one. Like who would have thought now in these recent years the importance of computer uh, tools or instrument instruments have such an influential role and like you said especially with cancer research and now going down the route of personalized medicine and genetics it's such an important now frontier i think there's a lot of investment so we need more people like uh, dr john lee's you know on it and helping you discoveries yeah there's definitely a big re- you know a big future for people so i'd encourage people to get into it you know if that's if that's the sort of thing you like and yeah, definitely, I think with the Human Genome Project, that's one of the things that really kick-started the whole field. Uh, it was around before in kind of structural bioinformatics in a, in a big way. But yeah, I think these big data sets, these big projects like the Human Genome Project have really mm. kind of, you know, that's that's really what kind of got the ball rolling mm. a lot faster. Yeah, and funnily enough, we actually spoke to Dr. Dave Carter last week and, you know, what yeah. he did in the Human Genome Project. So it's interesting. I mean, he was only a PhD student at the time, but yeah. I think... Is such a other thing we realize how much of, I guess, domino effect it will have for the future. Such a, an immense project. I mean, yeah. who knows what extent these things now using the human genome project can go to? 
Exactly. So yeah, I think things like, you know, that's leading now to personalized um, medicine. So in the field of cancer biology, where you can sequence an individual's tumor, you see what's particular mm-hmm. to that tumor, and you can then start to derive, um, you know, treatments to, that should work for that individual. So we're really mm-hmm. just at the start of that. But I think fields like that are really going to be where, you know, the public become a lot more aware of bioinformatics, mm-hmm. um, as it kind of starts to come into the, the clinic a lot more. So people, you know, in the cancer field of cancer, they'll have the, the cancer sequenced, and then there'll be some bioinformatics people and algorithms kind of, you know, analyzing their data. So I think it's kind of moving into the mainstream more in the, in the near, like, next 10 years. No, but it's amazing. Like, I mean, I don't know how advanced the personalized medicine frontier is at the moment. I mean, it's still very much up in the air because I don't know if it's an ethical issue or just a practical issue. I don't know how much it costs really to try and analyze someone's like a tumor's genome i don't know the cost behind it yes i mean it's really um sort of you know the cost is coming down very rapidly so in the future that's not going to be so much of an issue um it's really kind of you know trying to being able to read this you know read the book of Mm. life you know so that's that's kind of the issue and that's where a lot of the technical developments are at the moment so it's just Mm. a it takes time for all of these things to come through to uh, fruition. But yeah, there's a classic plot on the cost of sequencing a genome and it, it comes, it come, you know, eventually it's going to be $10 and then probably one day it'll be $1 to sequence a genome. Crazy. It just gets yeah. cheaper and cheaper. It's just getting cheaper and cheaper. Yeah, yeah. I think we were doing our, what was it last semester? Wasn't, yeah, it was the genetics module. And I think in one of the lectures, it, it mentioned about like the, the cost about, I think it was sequencing a, can't remember which organism it was, but it was in the millions. And this, this was early days in sequencing. And now if you think about it, it's under maybe a hundred pounds or something, like going from millions. I mean, it's yeah, mental. It just lends itself well to being sequenced. And then the, the challenge is not necessarily getting the sequence data, it's interpreting the sequence changes mm. um, and all of the downstream effects. That's where the complexity is. And that's that problem is so complex. You know, we'll all be in jobs for hundreds of years analyzing this because it's not, it's not necessarily like the field of physics where it's kind of, you know, it's very clean and, and you know, straightforward. You know, biology is really kind of... Well, it's unpredictable. Involved. I think that's I think yeah. that's almost the beauty of it, trying to find order in something so chaotic. It's a, little, it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So um, as a lecturer at Brooks, I know that you run the research methods module and also run a coding club at one point. But as a researcher, you are a the PI of Lee's lab, which looks at three main areas, structure and function of proteins, disease informatics, and machine learning. Can you tell us about how these three fit together? Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, so my background really comes from the field of taking protein sequences. So as we just mentioned, you know, the, this, this genome sequencing is getting a lot cheaper. Um, so, you know, we, we've now got hundreds of thousands of genomes already. Soon we're going to have millions of genomes, you know, eventually, who knows where it's going to end. But all of those genomes, we can extract the protein sequences out from them. Reasonably straightforward. It's quite straightforward. But then trying to understand what those proteins do in terms of their function, what they look like, so in terms of their 3D structure, and starting to understand, you know, how the proteins fit together with other proteins. That's the sort of thing that the, the amount of experimental annotation in these data sets on the protein sequences is really quite low still. So even though we've got hundreds of millions of protein sequences, we've only got 100,000 or so experimental annotations. 
So this is sometimes called the functional annotation gap. And that gap is just going to get bigger and bigger over the next 10 years. And um, so, for example, the Sangha, which is a world leader in, in sequencing genomes, you know, they, they've announced very ambitious proposals to sequence the whole of eukaryotic life. You know, so it's millions and millions of genomes. And, you know, they're doing, they're doing really, really well at that. So really, this is like one of the key challenges is how do we, we don't just want to leave these sequences sitting around in a database doing nothing. We want to mine them for novel functions, you know, novel antibiotics, um, potential novel uh, medicines, and even just to understand, you know, the evolutionary processes, you know, how functions evolve, it all ties together. So that's basically one of the, um, the focuses of that. So, and it stems from the work in the Orenga group. So we, we basically take protein sequences and then we predict the structures of those, on those sequences, specifically the domain structures. And we also annotate functions to those domains based on sequence patterns in, in, the, in the domains. So yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the protein structure for function prediction aspect. Um, now, sort of moving on to diseases, you know, so obviously to, to take a, a human genome, even the human genome, which is one of the most well understood, you know, well characterized genomes, there's still plenty of proteins. We don't know their functions. You know, people obviously know about P53 and they focus a lot of their research on those proteins, which is great. They are really important. But there's, there's a lot more proteins out there that kind of, you know, are, are really important. So we part of that is even the, the, the human genome, you know, predicting the functions automatically from sequence is really important. And that's before you go on to, you know, diverse eukaryotes like malaria, you know, trypanosomes, leishmania, all these, you know, really um, important disease organisms. So the ability to predict function from sequence is kind of one of the holy grails that's out there at the moment and that's something we're working on and it has obviously had relevance to disease the two things kind of tying together one area that i'm going into more and more is this field of cancer informatics that we discussed so it's really there's a lot more like i said there's a lot of really powerful data sets emerging so one of them just to mention briefly is this this crispr cas9 genome scale knockouts so you kind of go through and knock out every single gene in the genome and you you can do that um, for multiple genomes. So at the Sanger, for example, they've got 400 models of cancer and then they've knocked out each gene individually to see the effect on growth because cancers, you know, they have a lot of strengths, they outcompete our own cells, but they also develop a lot of weaknesses and dependencies. We want to kind of try and identify and exploit those, those weaknesses through um, drug development. So what I'm doing with the undergraduates is we're looking at these large data sets we're trying to extract knowledge, like I was saying. So we're looking for patterns in certain cancers that identify, you know, they've got this dependency on this pathway. And what we've been finding out this year is, is a subset of cancers that really have quite altered metabolism and they've got a much uh, higher dependence on uh, oxidative phosphorylation. We, we, what we're doing now, um, in collaboration with other people at Oxford Brooks and Oxford University, is we're designing drugs. Uh, we, we're going to test drugs, basically, on, on, on some of these predictions. So that's kind of almost one of the, the night, one of the frustrations of bioinformatics is sometimes you make predictions and you just, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. But, uh, you know, being somewhere like Oxford's great because there's a lot of, you know, it's quite a, it's very research intensive. So we can reach out to these other people close by and we can, we can test these things. So it's been a really, hopefully a fun project for the undergrads and, you know, they're making a real contribution potentially, you know, we don't know exactly where it's going, but that's one example of where we'd, we're using bioinformatics for, for studying disease. With your undergraduate then, project, sorry, are you 
using CRISPR yourselves, like the Sanger Institute, or what other process are you doing to kind of extrapolate or trying to understand these data sets? Yes. So that's, I mean, that's the really nice thing about bioinformatics. I think it's almost the nicest thing is we can just go to the Sanger website, download this data, you know, it takes a minute. And that experiment probably cost, you know, 30 million pounds or something to do. But, <laughs> oh you know, gosh. We, can, we can download it and we can start to analyze it for free. Mm. The bioinformatics is really kind of, you know, you just need a computer, which isn't expensive nowadays. You know, you can get computers on, online, even in your own browser. You can start to analyze these really ex expensive data sets. And what typically happens is, you know, as these data sets get developed, you know, they look for certain patterns, but they don't think of testing other things, or they don't think of combining it with other data sets, which is a way you can get out, mm. you know, new knowledge and new. So there's all there's all there's a creative aspect of bioinformatics, which I really like, which is kind of, you know, kind of thinking, actually, you know, if we look at it from this angle. Or if we combine it with this with this other data set and we take a slightly different approach, maybe we can find something else out. So it's a really kind of creative side to it that I think is probably my favorite part of it and the bit that I enjoy most. But yeah, it's it's really nice that we can go and test these in the in the lab now. And um, yeah, we've got some some good collaborations there. So fingers crossed. We never know what we're going to find, but hopefully it's uh, something that we could using personalized medicine for saying, you know, this drug will work on this subset of cancer patients. It's amazing how just from, I guess, a process of elimination, or like you said, by interpreting the data, you can go as so far as then selecting the types of drugs to use against those, I think, like those knockouts or those maybe overexpressed genes. I mean, can you just give us a quick example of, I mean, I don't know how complex it is, <laughs> like the process to then kind of decide, oh, okay, X gene was investigated and then we chose why drug to then act against it i think that's something which is mind-boggling for me how you can just go from one stage yeah. to another yeah so again it's you know what's nice nowadays is that all of this data is kind of well stored in, in databases which is one of the aspects of bioinformatics so just to give you an example about with that project you know we identified i think we found about 10 to 15 percent of cancers potentially have this dependency on this, this specific pathway um, in energy generation. Now, when we actually look at the genes involved, it's quite a, forms quite a tight, tight set of genes all forming this generating energy for these cancers. And you can clearly see if any of those genes are kind of missing, it, the cancer doesn't grow well at all. Mm. So what we can see is there's a, there's a drug that's used in diabetes for, you know, it's not used in cancer at all. It's used, it's used mainly in diabetes. And essentially, but we can see that it targets these these genes. So we can our hypothesis that we generate then is that if we give this drug to specific um, subset of cancers, they're going to display you know heightened sensitivity to this drug. So it shouldn't kill healthy mm -hmm. cells. It probably won't kill all cancers, but it will. It, you know our our hypothesis and our hope is that it will be really effective against the subset of cancers. So it's kind of a bit of detective work. You kind of have to follow the trail of things. But again, you know, we can we can find a lot of the information out from online resources. Mm. Um, Amazing. I did have a, a question about that. About how how far into the future do you think this will become applicable? Or is it like something super close and we're just on the cusp of um starting to use more personalized medicine using this kind of Yeah, I think research. I think we probably it's it's been kind of threatening to sort of, you know, 
happen quite some time, but I think it really is, you know, getting close now, especially in the field of cancer informatics, just because there's so many new data sets coming out there, like single cell data yeah. sets, and where we can really see the heterogeneity in the, in the cancers. And just, um, you know, also with machine learning and able to sort of look at these complex data sets, which we sort of talk about in a little bit, I suppose. So yeah, the, um, yeah, I think a lot of things are coming together at the right time, the, the richness of the data, the computers, and so you're never quite sure when it's going to sort of flip, but yeah, hopefully in the next 10, 20 years, it's going to be a really exciting time, I think. I hope so too.